If you're visiting us this morning, it's very good to see you. If you're not familiar with this part of God's Word, let me just give you the very briefest of recaps. We're dealing with the very end of Old Testament history and most of the events that are recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah take place between 500 and 450 years before the Lord Jesus Christ. And King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came across to Judah. Jerusalem eventually was destroyed. Uh, many of the people were carried off into captivity, into Babylon, and they became exiles there. And after 70 years, after the Babylonian Empire had been overthrown by the combined efforts of the Medes and the Persians, the new King Cyrus issued a decree that those who wished to return to their homeland could do so. And Ezra records the first two of three separate returns from Babylon back to Jerusalem. The first under Zerubbabel, and despite great affliction, they managed to complete the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And then sometime later, Ezra himself leads a smaller group back to Jerusalem. There he carries out a very necessary spiritual restoration of the people. And then the spotlight comes off Ezra and goes on to Nehemiah. If you go back a very long way, in some Bibles, Ezra and Nehemiah were actually recorded as a single book, not as two separate ones, because it is really all one story. And Nehemiah is the next man whom God is, is going to use to continue the work that has begun in Jerusalem. Nehemiah, we're told at the end of chapter 1, is a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, and he now is in his 20th year of his reign as the king. And Nehemiah is in the king's winter palace at Shushan, or some of you might have it in your Bible as Susa. And it's about 150 miles north inland from the Persian Gulf. And we're introduced to Nehemiah. His name means comfort of Yahweh. And in large part, that indeed is what God will use him to do when he returns to Jerusalem. He'll bring God's comfort to troubled people there. Now it's 14 years since Ezra returned to Jerusalem and Nehemiah receives this report from his friend that things back in Jerusalem are not good. Now for many centuries and years gone by, cities of course would protect themselves by enclosing the whole city behind a defensive wall. Some of you will have walked around cities such as Chester or Conway or maybe even in more exotic places than that, and walked around the old defensive walls of the city. You recall, of course, the famous story of the defeat of Jericho, as Joshua first led the people of Israel into the land of Canaan, and how that city's walls were brought tumbling down so that they could take the city. Well, Jerusalem also had been a walled city. But whilst the temple has been rebuilt, 
and Ezra has brought about much spiritual restoration, the walls are still mostly piles of rubble since Nebuchadnezzar did his worst and took those exiles into captivity. And the returned exiles in Jerusalem are under great duress from the surrounding people and they are greatly distressed and they have no wall to protect them and they are extremely vulnerable. One mark of the spiritual state of a believer is how they respond when they hear about other believers who are afflicted and in distress. Does it move you at all? A mark of the spiritual state of a believer is what they do when they receive distressing news. A mark of the spiritual state of a believer is what they what their first response is really when they're confronted with a situation which appears to be beyond anything that they can help with. And we see that Nehemiah spiritually is in the same league as Ezra as he immediately mourns and weeps over the plight of the Lord's people. And we are introduced to him fasting and praying and bringing everything before the Lord his God. Your real spiritual condition is often given away by your attitude to prayer. As Amon uh, has often been heard saying, you won't mind me quoting him, being at the prayer meeting regularly isn't necessarily an accurate indication of your spiritual condition. But never being there probably is. And we just had a reminder from the children's talk of the place of the church gathering to pray in New Testament days. We've just had a reminder from the children's talk of the effectiveness of the church gathering to pray. Just over a hundred years ago, Reuben Archer Torrey was an American pastor and evangelist. And he said this in response to what he was witnessing in churches even a hundred years ago. He said, it was a masterstroke of the devil to get the church and the ministry to lay aside the mighty weapons of prayer. Satan does not mind at all if the church expands her organisations and her deftly contrived machinery for the conquest of the world for Christ, if she gives up praying. He laughs softly as he looks at the church today and says under his breath, you can have your Sunday schools, your social organisations, your grand choirs and even your revival efforts as long as you do not bring the power of Almighty God into them by earnest, persistent and believing prayer. That was a hundred years ago. I'm not sure what he'd make of the, how things are today. Nehemiah was a godly man 
and he quite naturally knew what was required. And it wasn't to immediately rush off to Jerusalem or to put his hands to work. It was to put his hands together and pray. Let's listen to him as he prays. Here is a godly man praying. What can we learn? Number one, adoration. I pray, Lord God of heaven, verse five, oh great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. He's had awful news from Jerusalem, but he doesn't allow that to divert his eyes from who God is. That's a sign of spiritual maturity. God is still God. Nothing ever changes that. And that's where prayer begins. Because God is still God. And there's no sense in Nehemiah of doubting God or calling God into question over what's happening in Jerusalem. Do you see that? He talks there of God's faithfulness, one who keeps his covenant. It's not that God suddenly has abandoned them and let go of them. God is unchanging and God is sovereign and a piece of bad news doesn't change that. When something occurs which has overwhelmed your emotions, Nehemiah shows us how to respond. What you do is you turn away from how you feel and you turn to that which you know to be true. And there's no better truth to turn to than the truth of God because he is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so in the turbulence of all of your changing circumstances, you keep turning to the one who never changes. In the midst of all the turbulence of your emotions, you turn to that that you know to be true. <coughs> Fix your mind on what you know, not on how you feel. That's what Nehemiah does. And you recall that phrase, which Ezra used several times towards the end of his account, the hand of our God was upon us. Nehemiah knows that's what he needs. That's what Jerusalem needs. And that's where he is going to put his trust, that the hand of God will be upon him and that will be enough. And Nehemiah remembers the mercy of God God is not a harsh tyrant. You who keep covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. God is merciful and God is kind. And the news that's come from Jerusalem doesn't make Nehemiah question that or doubt it. God is on Nehemiah's side. He knows it. Even when circumstances might tempt you to think otherwise, he's still there. 
he is still the great and awesome God that he ever was. And so Nehemiah turns to him for refuge and help and strength. And he'll receive it. But do notice too that in those opening phrases of his prayer, he also acknowledges that because it's a covenant relationship that Israel are in with God, there are requirements on this side of the covenant. God is always going to keep his side of the covenant, always. But there are also requirements of us on this side of the covenant. And that determines just how much of that blessing you will know. Do you remember what Amon read just before from Colossians? If indeed you continue in the faith, keep walking closely with the Lord. If you would experience to the full what it means to have God keep his covenant with you, he will always do that. But if you want to know it and experience it for yourself to the full, then you need to be in the right kind of relationship with him. Love him. Keep his commandments which is precisely what Jesus said to his disciples, isn't it? Love me. Keep my, keep my commandments. You keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Even in the Old Testament, at the heart of God's covenant with his people was that they should love him with all their heart and mind and strength. And out of that love for him, follow him in glad and joyful obedience. Why would we do anything else for the one we love? And might it be the case as you kind of scratch beneath the surface of this phrase, Nehemiah, is saying, Lord, keep me in your love and help me to walk in obedience to you. So he begins with adoration, despite the bad news. And then secondly, as he continues to pray, we find confession. Confession in verses 6 and 7. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel your servants and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We've not kept the commandments his confession is clear. His confession is honest. His confession is specific. He acknowledges the state of their hearts before God. Corrupt. He acknowledges the form of their sin. Open and flagrant disobedience. And as we saw with Ezra, 
he doesn't attempt to hold the sins of others in Israel at arm's length. So sorry about all of them, O Lord, if only they were all, of, all like me. There's none of that in Nehemiah. How strong it is in all of us, the desire to save our face, to preserve our reputation, to even dare to think that mine is a better reputation than everybody else's. But I haven't done it, but it wasn't me. It's them, it's not me. Listen to Nehemiah. We have sinned. My father's house has sinned. I have sinned. Now mostly what he's talking about is what's happening 500 miles away in Jerusalem. But he knows in his own heart he's no better than the rest of them. We have acted corruptly against you. And what strikes you about this confession of sin as you find so frequently in the Old Testament is this corporate identity that they embrace together when it comes to sin. This, this affects all of us. And so we all need to come and confess before the Lord. I've got nothing to feel special about. I've got nothing to boast in. This is all of us together before the Lord. We all need to be on our knees before him. There's great humility in godly people as Nehemiah demonstrates all too well as on his knees he confesses the sins of the nation of his own household and of himself. Great humility before the Lord in prayer. But Nehemiah's prayer is not a hopeless prayer because his prayer, thirdly, is based upon promise. Do you notice that he bases his prayer on promise? Look at verses 8 and 9. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, Nehemiah is saying to God, now God, remember, you gave this promise. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And that's what's happened to them over many years. But, but, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah says to God, you promised that to Moses. You said that. I'm claiming that in prayer. Nehemiah calls upon that which God has previously promised and reminds God of it. Now, it's not because he thinks God's forgotten. It's not to insult God. Nehemiah is using that as the basis of his prayer. God is merciful. God is kind. God is loving. God is forgiving. He said so. And I'm going to pray in confidence and with hope and in anticipation because of what God has promised. 
Now, God has given other promises in the form of warnings. God promises that disobedience and unfaithfulness will result in his judgment because he's unwaveringly righteous and just. Nehemiah therefore acknowledges that God is not being unjust or unfair in bringing judgment against Israel. God's already promised. It wasn't a threat. He has promised that's what will happen if they're unfaithful and disobedient. Because that is as much a part of God's nature as is his mercy and his grace. You must remember that about God. Be careful not to forget that. Be careful not to minimise that. Be careful not to ignore it as if it's not important. Even worse, don't think that now that we're in the gospel age, now we have the Lord Jesus Christ, that somehow all of that Old Testament stuff about sin and judgment is a thing of the past. It isn't. It's all that Old Testament stuff about sin and judgment, which is the very reason why Christ came. I'm going to be reminding you of that this evening from Romans. But God is merciful and he is kind and he's loving and he's forgiving. And Nehemiah recognises and understands that the awful plight that Israel keeps putting itself in is because God has promised that will happen when they're unfaithful and disobedient. But he also remembers that God has promised what will happen if they will return to him. And he pleads that promise in prayer. You've said that if they return to you, you'll gather them back in. You've said it, Lord. That is my hope before you now. That's what I'm pleading. Bring us back to where we should be. And this is a really important lesson. You see, praying like this means that you're praying according to God's will. Because God has previously said it. Praying like this means that you will not be asking amiss because God has made it clear that this is his desire for them. So when you pray according to what God has said, you can pray with great hope, with great anticipation and with great expectation and be assured that God will listen and answer. And then fourthly in this prayer, we see repentance. And that's part of verse 9, you see. If you return to me, you have said, keep my commandments and do them. You will gather them back in. And, and clearly that's what Nehemiah wants to happen. That's his heart for the people. And this is repentance. If you return but do you notice something? It's not enough just to return. That's just the first part. There's a second part to repentance. Return and keep my commandments. That's repentance. That's what repentance requires. Because true repentance produces tangible evidence. True repentance produces a changed life. 
True repentance is the result of the work of God's Spirit, and it is He who produces and enables that change. John the Baptist challenged his hearers to produce fruit worthy of repentance. Show your repentance in your life, and this should be your life and mine. This should be your prayer, that it will be obvious to everybody who observes you that you are someone who is repentant. How will they know that? Because you have both returned to the Lord and you keep his commandments. That's what repentance is. And that's what repentant people do. And that's what Nehemiah longs for the nation of Israel. And God has promised how he responds to repentant sinners. They are always welcomed home. And then, fifthly, deliverance. Verses 10 to 11. These are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. Let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of the king. Because Nehemiah knows he's going to have to go and speak to Artaxerxes about this. And here's Nehemiah's final pointer for us this morning as a godly man prays. Deliverance. Being redeemed. Redeemed from the power of sin and redeemed from the enemy. And you know, you this morning probably understand redemption better than probably even Nehemiah did. Nehemiah recognises that it is God alone who can rescue his people. And it is God alone who can bring them back to where they should be. Because only he has the power to do it. And you see, in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what God has done for you. Through the penalty paid by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, God has brought you back to where you should be. Reconciled you to himself. If you're in Christ. If you're in Christ. You can know this redeeming power of God in your life. And you can know it today if you never have before. What does it require you to do? Well, basically it requires you to do what you see Nehemiah doing. It requires you to get down on your knees before the Lord and acknowledge that he is God. And it requires you to confess your sins. And it requires you to repent of them to turn around and not just turn around but go the other way following the Lord and his commandments and you'll be redeemed your life will be delivered it's the first and most important deliverance you need this deliverance that only God can give And Nehemiah looks to the Lord to deliver him in another way too. 
There's this great burden on Nehemiah's heart now that he must do something about the situation in Jerusalem. And he knows he's going to have to approach King Artaxerxes for his permission and for his help. Is he aware of the previous edicts that Persian kings have given in support of the Lord's people? I'm sure he probably must be. But that's no guarantee for him now. And so he petitions the Lord to be his deliverer in this thing. He asks the Lord to deal with the heart of the king one more time. That the king might be favourable to his request and he brings it all before the Lord and entrusts him to it. Some of you probably are in situations and you you feel right now like you need the Lord's deliverance. And he'll do that in one of two ways usually. He might deliver you from it. Praise the Lord if he does. Or he might deliver you through it. And praise the Lord when he does that too. But he will deliver you. He will see you through. He will listen to your prayer. He will answer you. And what a lesson in prayer this is for us today. If only we would truly grasp it. And that this would be us every time we bow our hearts and heads before our God and Father. To adore him, confess our sins, cling to his promises with repentant hearts, looking unto him alone who has the power and the authority to deliver us in, from and through everything that we face in this world. This is how a godly man prays. May it be your prayer and mine.